Hello everyone, my name is Cliff Duvinois, and after 20 years I've returned to my native Michigan and in my quest to reconnect with our great state, I want to talk to the leaders that are behind Michigan's top destinations. I'm going to learn more about them and the great experiences they and their team provide all of us Michiganders, and perhaps I'll learn a few things along the way. Welcome to the Call of Leadership podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. My name is Cliff Duvinois. And as of this recording, we are entering the 2020 home stretch. And I have to tell you, I absolutely just love, love, love this time of the year. It's like we get the trifecta of the best holidays all back to back. You get Halloween, Thanksgiving, and then finally Christmas. It is awesome. And Halloween is just a few days away. And today, we actually have the lady who literally wrote the book on Michigan's haunted lighthouses. She's also the founder of Promote Michigan. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, Diana Stempfler. Diana, how are you? I am doing great today, Cliff. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. So to get the ball rolling, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from? Uh, Well, that's a a very rounded question. I was born and raised in Southwest Michigan, a small town called Plainwell. I went to Western Michigan University, where I majored in print and broadcast journalism. Uh, But I currently reside in Walloon Lake, which might be notable to some folks as the summer home of Nobel and Pulitzer Prize winning author Ernest Hemingway. So that's kind of cool. And now I'm going to kind of jump ahead a little bit because you've written this book on lighthouses. And I know that you've got other books that are in the mix right now. Is this playing some kind of influence on you? Well, I've been a writer my whole life. I mean, I have my journals from elementary school. I was writing uh, poetry and short stories for my grandparents as a child. I was editor of my school paper. I taught journalism. So writing has always been part of my my makeup and, and storytelling as well. I grew up, uh, my dad's a radio broadcaster. So I just kind of grew up in this perfect environment that allowed for what finally happened. I mean, I these ghost stories in my book have been in my brain for 25 years. And it just took a little time to to actually put them to paper and and get them in published form. Now, what what sparked your interest in, in collecting these ghost stories, especially around Michigan's lighthouses? Well, my background in lighthouses really started in, in the late 90s. I worked for a nonprofit in Grand Rapids called the West Michigan Tourist Association, an organization I'm still very active with. And one of the projects that I had with them was the publication of the Lake Michigan Circle Tour and Lighthouse magazine. And I started with them, and my first job was to catalog all of the lighthouses on Lake Michigan. There's about 120. And it was a kind of a spreadsheet. So we had the, the lighthouse and what city it was in, but there were there were these columns that I had to fill in. You know, how tall was the tower? Was it an active light? Did it have its original Fresnel lens? Was there a museum? Was there a gift shop? Could you spend the night? Was there a keeper program? And one of the columns was, was it haunted? And I remember early on not really understanding the 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 whole dynamic of it all, but you know, in talking with these various lighthouse groups, I'd put an X or I wouldn't put an X. Well, it wasn't, you know, the the internet was very new back then. I was the only one on staff with an actual email address. And so over time, as more things became available online, more research, I traveled more, I started hearing more of what these actual stories and, and it became more than just a, a check mark in a box. It became 
the story of a keeper that that may have lost their lives or of a shipwreck that happened. And these stories really started to take form. And then I started to talk with people who were visiting and had these experiences at the lighthouses themselves. So it just really evolved. And about 20, about 12 years ago, 15 years ago, I started doing presentations back at libraries and such where I was using actually slide carousels. That tells you how long ago it was. <laughs> and, um, and telling these stories and, and, and they just kept getting more and more popular. I have, I have a full speaker bureau program, but this one just seemed to really draw the people and, and, and it's, and it's all ages, you know, kids love to hear these stories and, and older folks do. So it just kind of evolved from, from there. And so I'd been writing articles and talking about it. And, and three years ago, the history press and Arcadia publishing reached out and said, you know, we have, we have this haunted series of books, haunted America series, and, and they sell really well. And we always do really well with lighthouse titles. We want to put them together into one book. Would you write it? Apparently they Googled the topic and I'd written enough articles and given enough presentations that my name kept appearing as a, I guess, an expert in this area. And they reached out and I thought about it for a long time, but it took the push from them to them to come to me and say, we want you to write this book for us. And uh, it was great. I got to pick which lights to include. I mean, Michigan has about 130 lights and about 40 or 45 of those are rumored to be haunted in some way. And I get to pick which one. So I picked 13 because I mean, Cliff, if you're going to write about haunted stuff, you need to pick 13, right? Isn't exactly. that the lo a logical number? And uh, so I spread them out geographically based on which lake and it, which had the best stories, which ones I had the photos and the supporting documents for. And, and the book really uh, at that point wrote itself and just became, you know, filling in some very specific details. And, and it launched in March of 19. And uh, they printed a thousand copies at the onset and it was sold out in two weeks. So nice. that was pretty exciting. That really, really was. So I have to say, I know a few people who are writers that would probably give their left arm, not their right arm, because that's what they hold the pencil in, would give their left <laughs> arm to have a publisher tap them on a shoulder and say, you need to write a book. What was that like to, to have them just kind of push you like that? Well, I think it was the nudge that I really needed. I mean, people had asked me when I was giving presentations and I always take these other books from other authors, Fred Stonehouse, a historian out of the upper peninsula touches on a lot of these ghost stories in, in his various titles. And I, I, he's probably got like 50 titles. And so I would take other books with me and people go, well, where's your book? And I'm like, well, I really don't have one, but you know, if you want more, you should look at these books. And so people were asking and I, and, and friends were asking, and I always thought about doing it. But when the publisher came in and it was someone like the History Press, I mean, before this, I, I have probably 40 books in my collection alone that are by, published by the same company. And so it really helped. And when they came in and they, the, the guidance is very hands off, I mean, that you pick the stories. They, basically, they said, you need to be between 30 and 40,000 words. You need three to four pictures or graphic images for each chapter and no more than 50 images. And here's the deadline. And the rest of it, I got to choose. I got to pick the photos. I, I made the, the choice or recommendation on the cover shot, which is the Saginaw rear range light over in, in on Saginaw Bay. Nice. And they were, they were great to work with. They, they let me do it. They were just on me enough to make sure that I was meeting my deadlines. 
which is what I really needed. And I enlisted the help of family and friends. My daughter was a proofreader for me. My best friend read it. One of my other friends who's an English teacher proofread it for me. And my dad, who is a genealogist, in addition to being a broadcaster, was helping me dig up information. If I was hitting a roadblock with, with finding census data or death records, he would go in. And in fact, one of the greatest revelations in the book regarding the Waugashant's shoal light near Mackinac City was a result of, of something that my dad stumbled on. And it contradicted a story about the keeper that I'd been telling for 20 years and how he died. And so that was just a really exciting thing to happen in, as part of the research. Sure thing. And what is it? So I, I know you said before that you were working on this project and they had this box on a forum that said, is this a lighthouse haunted? Which part of me finds that mildly entertaining, but is this lighthouse haunted? Did, did, did you already have kind of like a, a sort of like an interest in the paranormal before you started this? Hey, did you get it another thought? I don't believe in such things. What, what, kind of, what kind of sparked this? I really had no knowledge or interest of it either way at that point. This was uh, 1997. But I also, at that point, didn't really understand the scope of lighthouses in Michigan either. I mean, I grew up uh, just north of Kalamazoo. So when I was a kid, when we went to the beach, we would either go to South Haven or Holland. And both of those towns have lighthouses. And I'm sure as a child, I saw them. But I had no real you know, knowledge of the fact that Michigan has more lighthouses than any other state, as well as more miles of freshwater coastline, that the, the impact that these lighthouses had in our earliest industries, whether that was the shipping, whether that was agriculture, fishing, and, and later years, tourism, you know, that there was a history that dated back to the 1820s. I didn't know any of that. I'm like, oh, well, yeah, I guess it makes sense. We have lighthouses because we have, you know, this, this great lake here. But at that point, that project really opened my eyes to so many different things. In fact, working at WMTA in general, I didn't really understand what the tourism industry was or what the impact of travel and tourism was to the state of Michigan until that time. Even though, you know, I would travel to Traverse City and I would travel to the Upper Peninsula, you know, my senior year between high school and college, my dad and I spent it traveling through Mackinac and the UP and along the Lake Michigan shoreline. And I was a tourist, but I didn't really understand the scope of it all. And, and today, you know, that's how I make a living. I am so fortunate that I get to survive COVID sitting at home writing articles and doing social media and promoting the, the people, the places and the products of our state and calling it a job. It's amazing. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And with regards to, with regards to the, the, the lighthouses, and I know that you, that your, that your book is very well uh, researched and some of these stories in here have, have given me the goosebumps, but, <laughs> but you also have gone and done paranormal investigations inside of these lighthouses. Now for, for that to happen, did you reach out to like local paranormal groups or something to, to work with them? Did you, did you just, you know, watch something on TV and say, Hey, if those guys can do it, I can do it too. I mean, how did, how did you, how did you make that happen? Well, my first real investigation into this was for South Manitou Island Lighthouse, which is in the book. And 
in the summer of 2005, which is right around the time that I started my company, I was actually invited to give a presentation in Empire in the Sleeping Bear Dunes area with the Manitou Memorial Society. And I said, all right, well, if I'm going to do that, here's what I want is my compensation. I want to go to the island because I had not been to South Manitou. I knew it was the island itself has a lot of lower the lighthouse particularly, said, I want to go to the island. I want to tour the tower. And that summer, so after I gave the presentation, they sent me over on the ferry. They put me up and let me stay in the Coast Guard station for the weekend, which is unheard of because it's rustic camping out there. And at the end of the day, the park ranger tossed me the keys to the lighthouse tower and said, lock it up when you're done. Nice. And I had a free pass. And it was, I remember the day, it was July 30th, because it was my daughter's birthday, and I got in trouble for missing her birthday uh, and being on the island. But we went to the top of the tower, and it was a full moon. It was a blue moon, actually, so the second full moon in that month. And we sat at the top, or we kind of w- made our way up. And, and it, you know, if you've been through a lighthouse, they have landings up along the tower. So we knew that they had, there were rumors that you could hear crying and talking coming in while you were in the tower, mostly coming from the house itself. And so we went and we sat on each landing and listened, nothing, next landing, nothing, even the landing that connected the causeway connected to the light, to the house itself, nothing. We got to the top of the tower, sitting up there, watching freighters, the sun's setting, the moon's coming up, not one peep from any of these ghost people. Now, I really didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have gadgets. I didn't have spirit boxes and all of these things that you see on TV. I do now, but I didn't then to, to do anything. I just sat there and listened and thought, well, you know, if I'm going to hear something, maybe I'll hear something. And I tell you what, even after consuming two bottles of wine at the top of that tower, we did not have a ghostly experience. (laughs) I tried. I tried. That was my very first one. And I, again, I didn't really know. I just, I I had heard stories. And so we went to visit to see what might happen. Um, The same for several of the other lights. Now I turned the manuscript in, in the fall, uh, right after Labor Day of 2018. And that November, excuse me, that October, right around Halloween, Uh, I went down to Fort Gratiot, which is in Port Huron. It's Michigan's oldest lighthouse, dates back to 1825. And they work with a local paranormal group and the public can pay to go on an investigation. I think it's like 50 bucks a person and you're there for six hours and you rotate through different buildings and you don't have to have your own gear, your own ghost hunting gear. They give you things. They give you uh, heat sensors, which now we're known for taking our temperature to see if you have COVID, um, which is ironic because now I have one of those. So I have dual purposes for it. <laughs> and they give you sound, they give you spirit boxes and in uh, divining rods and all of these other things. And you go through the investigations. And so when we were down there that, that fall, we had some interesting drops in temperature, which is usually an indication that there's some kind of uh, spirit in that area. We had this different words coming up out of the spirit box that were supporting past stories that I'd heard. Cause I mean, I clearly knew these stories of these keepers going into this investigation. Sure. But when you have things that reinforce that, it's really kind of interesting. And so we have um, some video, one of the most, the most compelling things, our video that we have of flashlights 
they basically take the little mag lights and they put it in a binder clip and set it on the floor and they ask questions and they ask the spirit to turn the lights off or on. And we have video of the lights actually turning off and on. And, and you know, if you have those flashlights, you have to actually turn the bottom. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a lot of energy, you know, for a spirit to turn that. And we have this video. One of the most interesting things uh, we didn't even realize we had until later, uh, my boyfriend who was with me had taken very few photos. I, you know, I go to an investigation, I'm taking hundred photos and 50 videos. And he took like five photos. We get back and at the beginning, the first thing we did, it was a very gray, rainy day, is take pictures of the lighthouse tower. So I have mine, and here are, you know, three pictures of the tower. He took three pictures of the tower, and all of them were upside down. Whoa. Yet all the pictures before were right side up, and all the pictures after were right side up. So three pictures, they were all upside down. But later, and I'll send you this personally just so you can see it. Uh, and if people come to my presentation, they'll see it on the big screen as well is he took this picture at the base of the tower. The tower was the last building that we went in and he had gone to the top. I, I, ironically, I'm afraid of heights and I will not climb towers. <laughs> so he, part of our relationship agreement is he has to climb the tower. So he went up and took the picture of the tower. He takes this picture looking down and the lights on in the tower, the, the hall light, not the light in the top of the tower, but he takes a picture of the spiral staircase from the top. And it was, we're reviewing the photos later. And then when he got, then he, there, when he got down, we were looking and he had another picture taken at the base of the tower. And it was, you could see the kind of the shadow of the spiral staircase. You could see one of the windows in the tower and you could see the brick. But what you could also see was the grass, the sidewalk and the lights in the park outside the tower. It was like a dual image, like a double exposure, oh, which wow. I don't think is an option on the Galaxy phone, but maybe it is. I mean, I don't know. I've, I'm an iPhone person. So, you know, I don't, I don't think that the Galaxy really allows for double exposure digital images. And when we blew it up, you can actually see just you can see lights on in the fog signal building, which if you blow out the wall of the tower, that building is where it showed up in the picture. So he was getting images inside and outside in one picture, but that wasn't the weirdest part. If you look at the timestamp on those two images, which he still has on his phone, they were taken something like 23 seconds apart. Now, I don't know any human who can go down a set of spiral stairs in a lighthouse that quickly. Yes. Well, the only way I know of is to fall. To fall, right. <laughs> and he clearly didn't fall. But, you know, if you're, a, if you're a spirited energy, that's nothing. And that was the weird, like, and it, it, it actually, the image itself we saw and we blew it up on the TV. It wasn't for like two weeks until we kept, we couldn't get it out of our head. And we went back and looked and that's when we realized he's like the timestamp. And I'm like, that's just weird. Like, how do you, how do you do that? How do you go down a hundred plus spiral stairs in 20 seconds. Right. So that was what the, like I said, the sad thing is, is that, that, that story, your, your listeners are going to get to hear it. Um, and if you come to one of my programs, you'll hear it, but it's not in the book because the book had already been turned in. So. <laughs> yeah. Just your luck. Right. 
Well, you know what? It gives some gives somebody a reason to come listen to the live presentation, I guess, when we are allowed to have them again. You bet. You bet. And I, I find it, I, I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier. I find it really interesting that when you go on one of these investigations with these paranormal groups, they actually give you uh, equipment to use because, and, and I'll be completely honest with you, uh, the spirit box is pure evil. I, every time I'm watching a show, one of these ghost hunter shows and they pull out the spirit box, I hate it. I yes. can't stand it. I, I, I just, oh my God, because the, the, the words, you know, the sentences right. that have yep. come from those well, spirit boxes and the range from, you know, let's say like it could go from a female voice to a male voice. And there's been some times where the voice is actually growled and yeah, that's, that's, oh, that would just freak me out. Well, they don't let you just like roam around by yourself with it. They are there. So I would imagine if somebody was there and is, is notably calling summoning demons, they, they probably are going to put a, <laughs> put a stop to that. Oh, yeah. So, so, and I do get it. I mean, it, it is funny because uh, now I have this, I have a kit because in addition to, to doing the lighthouses, we visit a lot of other historic sites. You know, we've traveled to Greece and to, to Niagara Falls and to Key West and Chicago and Nova Scotia. And everywhere we go, we go, where's the haunted tour? You know, we're, uh, we just did one again in uh, yes. Bay. So I started to buy, you know, we started buying our own equipment and my daughter was here visiting recently and she, uh, I was gone and she was at my house and she's like, why do you have a spirit box? And I'm like, well, and you know, we use it when we go out. She goes, yeah, I I've wanted one, but I'm very same thing. I'm scared that I would do something that I couldn't undo. And I said, well, when we use it, we always are with a medium or a paranormal investor. We're with people who are more knowledgeable than us. And we have it so that, A, there's more equipment for other people that are in a group that are there, but so that we can learn how to use it in a safe and responsible way. Sure. So, you know, it's exciting. We'll have it. We're doing a, a, some seances coming up at, you know, it's, it's really great to see destinations in Michigan. And I'm actually doing a little bit of research on what we call paranormal tourism where people travel all over for these purposes, where you're starting to see it, you know, I think thanks to the cable TV networks, it's more mainstream and, and, and it's not an underground thing to have to go to a, to a seance or to go on a haunted tour or to go on an investigation. It's, it's becoming, you know, more common. And it's, I think it's great to, to be able to see that. And with my book, you know, it's, as you get through it, it, you'll see that, yes, there are ghost stories, but it's about 40% haunting and really about 60% history. Yes. You know, the history of the keepers, the history of the lighthouses, the industries that were going on, the communities in which these lighthouses uh, stand. And the ghost stories really are, in most cases, just a fraction of what that true story really is. Now, for your uh, investigating, you're, you're going out, you're meeting up with, with the paranormal groups, you're out there investigating these lighthouses. Do you have... Uh, let's say like maybe one particular uh, story that, you know, you were in the middle of the investigation, you know, something happened every, you know, the, the, the hairs on your arm stood on end. You got the full body chills. Is there, is there any stories like that that you could share? Well, I have a, a, a really good story um, that comes from the book. A, a good friend of mine has told this to me and, and you had mentioned, you're going to talk to a couple of my friends from the upper peninsula here soon as well. And uh, they have had this encounter. So this is a little tidbit for you to open up a question to them. Nice. 
is the Shishwa Point Lighthouse, which is located in Gulliver. It's in the Upper Peninsula, and it is on south of US 2, which is the main east-west road there. And this lighthouse keeper died in 1910. His name was Joseph Willie Townsend, and they believe he died of lung cancer, a heavy, heavy smoker. And people today will go through the light and they will smell the cigar smoke. They will catch that whiff of, of cigar smoke. And I was told by the woman who runs the museum there that his wife never let him smoke in the house, which I find quite interesting that you can still smell it. So it's not like it's lingering right. hundred years later. And, and, and the Uber paranormal guys have had this happen, happen to them. And my friend, Chris Struble had the same situation as well. And what was interesting to note is that Townsend, after he died, he died in April. Now, if you've ever traveled to the upper peninsula in April, it's not like April in Detroit. It's usually pretty snowy still. So if you die in early April, at that point, they weren't able to bury him. So he was actually embalmed in the basement of the light. And this is 1910. So this is before the Mackinac Bridge. His family was from out of state. So it took them a while to get there. It was three weeks that he lay in state in the parlor of the lighthouse. Wow. And then his family had, they had their service. Well, it's still April and he still can't bury him. I don't know when he actually got put in the ground, but if anybody has a reason to haunt a light, it's a guy who was embalmed in the basement of his own home. (laughs) And lay and stayed in his own parlor for three weeks and then put back in the basement. Right. I mean, I think he's got a legitimate cause. So the summer, that summer that I turned the book in, I went up and I was doing some last minute investigation and and went and was taking some additional photos. And in fact, the photo on the, about the author page in the book is me at Shishwa. And I wanted to smell that cigar smoke. And I had been there years and years ago with my mom. I'm just now remembering this. She would ask if I'd had other experiences. And I actually did there. Back in the early 2000s, my mom and I went there. And this guy was taking pictures. And he came back the next day when we were there. And he was showing all of these weird apparitions in his pictures. And like I said, I'm just now remembering that I had that experience up there. So, you know, it's just really weird. They've had as many as five ghosts there. There are three books written about the ghosts at that light alone, written by the museum director. And that summer I went up, one of the things that was very important to me with this book was to go visit the graves of these keepers. So I went to the light, wanted to smell the cigar smoke. I didn't want to see Townsend. I didn't, I didn't have any activity there. But then I left and went to Manistique where he's buried and I left him a cigar nice on his on his grave i should have gone i it, it didn't dawn on me to leave and come back and see what the condition of the cigar was but i'm a cigar <laughs> smoker myself and so last fall when my boyfriend and i were up there we went back and we we may or may not have had a flask with us and cigars and we actually stood there at his gravesite and uh, toasted him in his life mm-hmm. and enjoyed a cigar in the rain and, and continue to pay our respects to him and, and, and to thank him, as I've done with all these other keepers, um, thanking them for allowing me to tell their stories. You know, and it's, it's when I was reading uh, your, your book, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, it's interesting that these lighthouse keepers, just how really dedicated they were to their profession in one of the the lighthouse uh, stories that uh, you highlighted in your book, there was one about a lighthouse keeper who I can't remember how, but he lost one leg and somehow or another, he climbed up and down the stairs 
of the lighthouse to turn the light on, to turn it off or whatever it was. He, he did this every day. And more than, more than once he had to go out in like really bad weather. And I can't remember the circumstances of it, but, but it just, it was a very powerful visual because he was literally crawling because he couldn't walk. The wind was blowing really hard. The waves Mm -hmm. were crashing and he, you know, he couldn't walk or anything because he only had the one leg and he was literally crawling to do his job. And I know that there's, you know, some of these paranormal groups will, will talk about a correlation between people's love of a, you know, of a particular location. And with some of these, you know, when you talk about the lighthouse keeper still haunting that lighthouse because of their, their avid dedication for their job. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're, you were referencing uh, Captain James S. Donahue in South Haven. He was a civil war soldier. So he lost his leg in battle. That's what it was. Yes. And it was very common because lighthouse service at the time when it was founded was through the, through the office of the president. There were a lot of times political appointments that came from the, the president's office. And so when he got out, of, got discharged from the service, he took a job as a lighthouse keeper, which I find, as you said, very interesting when he has only one leg and his, he, the lighthouse in South Haven isn't attached to the keeper's residence. So he actually had to walk walk down the embankment with a set of stairs down along the river out the catwalk or the um, pier, depending on the weather and then up to the tower. And he had a peg leg. He also had crutches. And I'm assuming he had some kind of contraption to allow him to pull the, the pail of oil that he would have needed. I have trouble walking up and down a lighthouse with two good legs. Yes. I mean, I can't even imagine on a peg leg, no less. And, and as you mentioned, you know, crawling and, and when he would do that, he would hold the lantern in his teeth just to get there. And the nights that he would spend sleeping in the tower because it was their job to make sure that that light stayed lit. And it was on the stormy nights that their job was even more valuable because ships were likely going to be in distress during those, those conditions. He served 35 years. He saved 15 lives in addition to men tending that light. And he, his dedication was just amazing. We have up the shoreline, White River Light Station. Bill Robinson was instrumental in the building of the light. It wasn't there when he arrived in the Whitehall area in 1860s. And he petitioned for years to have it built. He was then hired as part of the crew to erect the light, named the first keeper, died there, and is buried in a cemetery facing the lighthouse. You know, 44 years that he served at that light. Nice. Yeah. And, and it's just, you know, it's just, it's a different lifestyle. I mean, they had 13 kids, so they had a lot of kids to help out at the light. But it was remote, especially if you were on an island. Even more remote if you were on an offshore, like a crib light or a shoal light. Typically, no families would be there. It would be uh, single men. But you had to be committed to what you were doing. And it was a solid job from like April to December, day in and day out. And surprise inspections um, by the Coast Guard later in later years. They were tourist attractions back then. And because it was government property, if a family of tourists showed up, you had to be prepared to give them a tour of your home. So it always had to be ship shape. Wow. Now that's something I, I didn't know. And I don't know if I would be too hip on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think I need people just randomly stopping by my house on a daily basis. I have too many piles of papers around my house, but yeah, it's, it was, it was, I think more than a calling. And, and as you said, I think that is, 
is the primary reason you see a lot of these lights where the ghosts are tied to, to keepers or members of their family who either died at the light, who were so active um, at it for so many years, or just people that died during shipwrecks that were in that particular area. We see a lot of that as well. Nice. Now, for anybody who's listening to this podcast, if they have an interest in, you know, let's say checking out some haunted lighthouses, maybe for the upcoming weekend for, you know, Halloween, whatever it is, what would be like maybe, what would be like three recommendations that you would have and say, go check out these lighthouses? Maybe they got interesting stories, a hotbed of activity or something along those lines. But what three houses would you recommend? Well, it's a little interesting this time of year because th- those that are normally open for tours and investigations may not be. So I'm not exactly sure who is open, but a couple that I would recommend, I'm pretty sure White River Light Station in Whitehall is still offering some tours. If not, at least you can walk the, the grounds there. It's right along the shore uh, of the, that. And if you go to Whitehall and do that, you want to pop over to Montague and visit the Mouth Cemetery. That is where Bill and his wife, Sarah, are buried. And that, that uh, cemetery has its own set of ghost stories. It sits next to a former cult property. So we spent a little bit of time investigating over there as well. Sweet. Um, now, when, now, when you said Bill, he's the lighthouse keeper, right? Yes. Yep. Bill Robinson there. Okay. And his family's buried uh, in that cemetery. It's an abandoned cemetery, so it's a little hard to find and it's surrounded by private property. So it's a little bit of a challenge. You got to kind of be dedicated to get into it. I also agree with going over to Fort Gratiot um, in Port Huron, mainly because it is the oldest lighthouse in Michigan. It's still active. It has a beautiful grounds and complex. I'm not sure that the tower is open, but you can certainly walk around and, and get photographs of, of that. And uh, peak color in Northern Michigan and throughout the state of Michigan as the end of October approaches. So I would think if you wanted to go to the UP, either Shishwa in Gulliver or Whitefish Point, which is where, of course, the Edmund Fitzgerald sank in, I think it was November 10th, 1975. That has a lot of ghosts around that. And the complex there is, is pretty phenomenal right there along Lake Superior. But, you know, there are uh, 130, almost 130 lighthouses in Michigan, 13 in the book, but 40 of them are, are haunted. And if you go to, there's a, actually a Facebook page for the book, and there's a, a graphic on there that'll show you um, the list of other lights that may not be featured in the book, but you can do some of your own investigation to find those as well. Nice. And speaking of which, if people wanted to uh, connect with you or follow you uh, online, what's the best way for that to happen? So you can go to mihauntedlighthouses.com. That website will actually redirect to a page on my primary website for Promote Michigan. You can purchase copies that are available. And you can also find the list of upcoming presentations. I've canceled over 30 of them this year, but I have a couple coming up, one in Lake City, one in White Cloud. And uh, so we've got those. And you can order the book there. So for Facebook, if you search Michigan's Haunted Lighthouses, and it is there, and I share additional information there beyond what's in the book, other, other sources, other photos and whatnot. So you can check that out as well. Excellent. Thank you for that. And for our audience, we will definitely make sure to have all those links in the show notes down below. Diana, it's been great having you on the podcast today. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for talking with us today. 
Well, thank you for the invitation. Hey everyone, if you enjoyed this episode, then subscribe to our email newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get new episode announcements. You'll get all kinds of great behind the scenes information on upcoming guests. Plus, you'll receive special offers from our guests and partners that you can only get through the email newsletter. Subscribing is quick, easy, and best of all, it is free. Just go to callofleadership.com slash email, type in your email address, and you're done. Once again, that's callofleadership.com slash email. I'll catch you in the next episode.